I'm Rick Cushman, and this episode of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul is sponsored by Tourism Vancouver. They want you to know that now is the time to visit the best wines, cuisine, and entertainment from around the globe in Vancouver, British Columbia. Festival season is just beginning there, and winter hotel rates are still available. It's a great time to savor Vancouver, one of the world's great cities. Their daily flights direct from California. That means travel time is short and your dollar is strong. So get in a getaway while you can. Go to tourismvancouver.com to learn more about the things Vancouver has to offer. And don't forget, you can catch Paul at the Vancouver International Wine Festival February 24th to March 4th. Maybe even better, you can go to Vancouver and go to the festival and avoid Paul entirely. That's all at vancouvertourism.com. Welcome to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. So, Paul, you know how lots of people who have heard our podcast, they kind of tell us now and then to put a cork in it? Oh, do I ever. They tell us that a lot. Well, now more and more they're telling us to put a screw cap on it. (laughs) Okay. Now we're into it. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Well, yeah, and uh, I I know it's a fairly lame setup there, but my point is today we're talking about wine closures. And corks and screw caps and all the others. Yes, indeed we are. And also today, listeners ask about whether there's a definition of rosé, which is really a good question, Mm -hmm. if all Mm -hmm. wines get better with age, and about how to open an old bottle. Mm. Plus, our truly horrible wine writing is dense, thick, and concentrated. Sounds like you, Rick. (laughs) I've been called all those things, (laughs) and usually together. Plus, as usual, we will make fun of wine snobs. And um, by the way, you know, it's hard to believe we are still, uh, here we are now, almost a year on, uh, I think this may be close to our anniversary, of, uh, of... on Capital Public Radio's podcast line. Recommended educational podcast. What is wrong with those people? Those are That's the NPR station in Sacramento. You would think they'd know better, Paul. Oh, no, it's hard to explain. Speaking about thinking they'd know better, uh, you're going to be leading a cruise for uh, on the Expedia Cruise Line. So, yes. Uh, the cruise line is actually... Crystal. 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 Uh, so uh, da- down the coast of California. Down from San Francisco to Cabo and back. This is in uh, July of 2018. Right. Um, so you'll, you'll, they'll, they'll cruise, have a regular cruise. Have a regular cruise, plus, but in addition to that, have wine tastings, have winemaker dinner. Dinners. I give a couple of lectures. Should be a lot of fun. Should be wonderful wines. Mm-hmm. And it's all done through this uh, Expedia Cruise Ship Centers. And I have worked with them a lot in the past, and they are great. Yeah, and and, and what's even great about this cruise is at some point you decide you don't want to listen to Paul. You don't have to go you to the lectures. To, that's right. You can just go <laughs> off just and sit on the deck and drink enjoy, wine. The, that's drink wine and yes. enjoy the scenery. The place to sign up if you're interested to get more information is Wine Cruise Group. Dot com And yep. the, we have a link on our yep. website. You can find it there. And our website, of course, is rickandpaulwine.com. Yep, that's right. So yep. uh, Hope to see you on board. And the good news is Rick won't be there. Yeah, can't make it. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, just pepper Paul with— Man overboard. I, well, I was going to say just <laughs> be—if uh, you want Paul to feel like I'm around, be as dumb as possible. And it'll be just <laughs> like I'm there. Just like I'm there. All right. So, Paul, we got a question from an astute listener, listener David, in Princeton, New Jersey. Ooh, Princeton, okay. New Jersey. You know, where yeah. there are apparently some astute people. That's right. And see, he says, I'm seeing lots of stories recently about how great cork is as a wine stopper. Yep. It used to be I was seeing lots of stories about how great screw caps are. Yep. Me thinks the cork industry has an advertising campaign going on. Yep. Do I care? 
P.S. I don't really say me things. It just sounded good here. <laughs> I like David. <laughs> I do too. Well, first of all, that both of those were advertising campaigns. Yes. Because originally the aluminum industry had a big advertising promotion. The aluminum promotion. industry? And I, I just like saying that. That's right. And so they were pushing screw caps. And then the cork industry is uh, counter-suing, I guess, or counter-advertising. Truth is, these days, they both work pretty well, but... Do, you, do we want to get into all of that? I think you do, don't you, I Rick? do, but let's talk a little <clears throat> bit about that because, you know, it's a question that we get cork and screw cap related questions a lot. A lot. And, and I know just yes. in life, uh, those are conversations that happen. So let's do a little bit of the background sort of. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there was a time and I actually I remember when I was writing my first book and this was in um, – the early early 2000, 2004, mm-hmm. 2005. Right. And I remember we went to every tasting room in Napa Valley during one wine season. That's like back then, you know, almost 150 All in winners. one day. That's a lot of work, right? <laughs> one season, my friend. <laughs> so, you know, we tasted well over 1,500 wines, I think. Right. Yeah, and – and we found uh, our guess would have been about, which is what sort of the industry standard was, about five percent or so. Hmm. You know, one wine almost every day we had a corked wine. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. and yeah. and and you know now being around for me it feels less. Uh, you know, the yeah. cork industry says that. Um, in the 90s, about 95% of the closures were cork. Now it's more like 70%. Right. Because you've got bag in the box. You've got, as we've talked in previous shows, the little cans sometimes. Right. Right. You've got plastic stoppers, which are not – they're synthetic rather than natural cork. And then you've got uh, screw caps. Yeah. So lots of different options for wineries. Yeah, and it is uh – there, there is it absolutely is. You know, I think there's like 12 billion cork stoppers still out there. Um, you know, so the the to to go backwards, the issue with cork has always been our old friend 246 trichloroanisole or what is known as TCA. TCA. And it's you know when you're tasting that wine at the start of a meal or whatever, often what you're tasting for is if it's corked. That's what it's called. And it's moldy paper, wet yeah. dog. It smells like the. Sponge in your kitchen sometimes. Does uh, I, I dip that into my wine? That might be a problem. So, but it's actually really powerful. Stop one small drop. Right, would be the equivalent. Would could spoil the equivalent of twenty Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of wine. Which is a lot of wine to that's drink. My in one night. That's, that's my Tuesday, Tuesday night. That's my Tuesday night. Yeah. That's so that's thinking. why we try to yeah. get that drop away. Yeah. Um, but so the estimates were, you know, the general estimates were that like that five-ish percent. Right. Now estimates are less. Right. Um, the industry says um, – you And know, it used to good. be, frankly, in my experience, it used to be that the wines that – it's not – it was perhaps as high as 5 percent, but it was also the 5 percent was actually quite noticeable, whereas these days it's a smaller percentage and it's less likely that it actually jumps out of the glass at you. You know, I, I know you and I do a lot of professional <laughs> tastings and, you know, sometimes we'll be all you – know, a bunch of pros will be going, is this cork? Is it or not? Yeah. Hard to tell. Yeah, and, barely, and maybe a little bit. One of the things that – one of the really sort of evil evil things that TCA does is sometimes it doesn't leave so much as of a taste as it just dulls the wine. But you get TCA in berries. You get it in ice cream. You get it in – in fact, one of my favorite stories of all times about TCA is that the professor at UC Davis who gave her students a small sample of what TCA actually smells like and they all looked at her and said, carrots, because Mm. the smell is so predominant. In those little bags of baby carrots that everybody buys, those smell – you want to know what TCA smells like? Yeah. Buy carrots. Yeah. 
That's what it smells uh, so, like. So, obviously, so it has more of an effect on wine than it does on, on, on all those other things. Clearly, it yeah. bothers people more in wine than it does in carrots. Yeah. Well, and so, a glass of carrots. And so, 15, 20 years ago, the, the aluminum industry saw an opportunity, identified this as a concern, had a pretty strong promotional campaign, and, and frankly, challenged the cork industry. Uh, to improve their quality. Cork industry, I think, over the past 15 years has responded to a certain extent. These days, it's possible to get pretty good closures in almost any kind. And it's really up to the winery what they want to use. Well, and one of the reasons why there is, I mean, there's a handful of reasons why things have changed. One of them was that what they used to use to sterilize the cork was right. a chlorine solution, which right. actually the chloral, that's the part of the that's chlorine gets right. uh, enlivened. Yep. Um, and um, there's other things that change the industry. You know, one of the big changes in the industry, which has nothing to do with us in the U.S., was Tesco, the very large supermarket that, uh, that, right. that commands the British Empire. Yeah. Um, yeah, they basically put out a dictum that yeah. said we are only taking white wines with screw caps. Right. And yeah. overnight, and I, I, and I can't remember what year it was, and I think it was like 2001, hmm. but overnight, um, Australia and New Zealand, since England was their biggest market, went Switched. from like 5% screw cap to 95% yeah. screw cap. Yeah. 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 And that's what you can do with whites because you're bottling that day. And so, so loss has changed. There's been, there's been lots that have been going on. Um, but, you know, so, Paul, as a marketing guy, you know it's in, important for the industry to also be vocal about saying we're working on it, right? Well, particularly true. And, you know, to be fair, I represented the cork industry for many years back in those early days mm-hmm. when it was getting— getting uh, That would explain uh, the bad press? Assaulted. That's right. <laughs> um, and, it, you know, it's a fascinating industry. It's a, it's a wonderfully natural industry. Um, the fact that it's natural means that it has some inherent dangers that you have to deal with. Uh, but these days, really, you can get a good closure in almost any of those styles from synthetic to natural. There's, you know, there's another kind of cork, which is not just a single cork punched from a tree, but it's actually the glued composite. together. Yeah. Uh, agglomerated cork, it's called. Yeah. Uh, you can All of those, in one way or another, make, you can get them in pretty good closures. So it's really more a question of what the winery wants to do right. and how they want to manage things. Right. And in the end, the one thing that has become clear over the years is that most consumers, particularly as they move upscale in wine, prefer to have a natural cork in that upscale wine. But the interesting thing is that the younger generation is less judgmental about screw caps and perfectly happy to open a more expensive bottle of wine with a screw cap if it means they're getting a really good bottle of wine. So uh, just just because it's fascinating, we should probably spend some time, another show, talk a little bit more about how they make cork. It really yeah. is pretty cool. Well, they cool. actually grow it. They grow it. It they, is, yeah, the, is the interior bark of a certain kind of an oak tree. An oak, a cork oak a tree. Cork oak. And in fact, there are cork oaks in California. There are some at Napa Valley College where I teach and, and some and other you, places. And when you see one, you get it. They, ha- they do oh, have that look. Oh, it's very spongy bark. Yeah. It's very yeah. spongy bark. And, but it takes a long time. They say in, in Europe that if you are looking for an investment for your children, plant a vineyard. Yes. If you're looking for an investment for your grandchildren, plant a cork forest. Right. It takes so, that long yeah, to the, show profit. The, at, at a minimum, 20 to 25 years for a tree, um, some as right. old as 40 years. 
years. Right. And then you can more or less reharvest every nine years. About every nine years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. what happens with the bark is stripped? I mean, this is the really simple bark is stripped. It's dried. It yep. is, um, it, uh, it essence, you know, it leaches it's, into the ground some. Um, and then they basically punch out little well, cork they cut size. it into strips. Right. And then narrow. They, and then they punch the corks out of those strips going lengthwise. So the corks would, if they were put back on the tree, would sort of go vertically around the tree. And then after they do that, there's all the treatments. They're, they're washed and they're this and they're that. And they're eventually classified according to how many flaws they have. Rick, I don't know what level of a cork you would be, but... Um, I would be a, a, a cute as a button cork. The cute as a button. Well, the actual top quality is called flor inata, which means which means flowers and cream. Ooh, I want to be that. Yes. Can I be flowers and cream? Yes. This and those I'm... corks, if you buy them, are going to cost you well over a dollar a piece. Yeah. And, and the last piece of it is how well it, you know, how the oxygen exchange, quote unquote, you know, a little bit of air gets through and how right. well it helps a wine right. uh, age. And, you know, there's there's all lots kinds. Of debate. Lots of debate. Lots, lots of, of debate. Lots of tests. Um, uh, we could we could bore you with my studies. Maybe we will another time. I can hardly that. wait. Yes, I know that you can. Uh, so in the meantime, why don't we take a question or two and wake you up? Uh, oh, there we are. There we yes, go. hello. Okay, hello. Um, you are listening to Bontag with Rick and Paul. <laughs> and if you'd like to ask us a question, the place to go is our website, which is rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Uh, and don't forget, on iTunes, if you haven't found us there, go ahead and subscribe. Really, really easy. Okay, this one is from Jennifer in Oakland. She says, My husband thinks he's being a good guy by never letting anyone open a bottle at our house. He grabs a corkscrew and says, Guests don't have to work. Personally, this is Jennifer still talking. <laughs> I wish our guests would wash the dishes, but that's not my question. Yeah. So the other day, he opened a kind of old wine and only pulled out a small piece of the cork. So how do you open an old bottle of wine? Is he actually doing anything nice by always grabbing the corkscrew? So I'm going to put a word of defense in for her husband. I kind of like it. In two ways. One of them is I'm always a little offended if a guest comes to my house, brings a bottle of wine and says, oh, here, let me open this for you so we can drink the wine I, I gave you as a gift. And I'm thinking, you gave me the wine as a gift. Why don't you let me decide what I do with the gift rather than you deciding? So first of all, husband is resolving that problem neatly. By taking I'm it, in yeah. charge of the wines, and I'm matching the wines with the people and the food, and I'm the host, and it's my job. I and like, I like that. I like it for another reason, too, and, and it is almost gallant. You know, it's the, I've yes. got this. You yes. go ahead, sit down. I'm, I've got I this. I am the host. Now, yes. there's a wonderful story about opening bo old bottles of wine because years ago, my company put together a tasting of great uh, port houses, and they had all brought their really old vintage ports. And so a number of the port producers were there, but one of the guys was unable to attend the tasting and asked us to open his wine and get it ready for the tasting. And one of my staff was there, and we'd given very careful instructions on how to open these older bottles. And she was very careful, and she pulled the corkscrew out, and she pulled out the center of the cork. And Which the is probably what her husband did. That's exactly what happens. And the rest of the cork just ended up in shreds inside the bottle. And she looked at me with horror on her face and said, oh, my God, what do I do? And I said, look, it's okay. In the, back, in the back behind that door, there's a little kitchen. Go in there and pour, get an empty bottle, rinse out the empty bottle, clean the empty bottle, and take a, a, a little coffee filter or something, pour the wine through the filter back into the bottle, filter out the cork sediment. I don't think very many people are going to notice. So she went back there. She, she talked to me. She says, this is what I do. Yeah. So she goes back there. And I, I can't stand the suspense. I got to walk back and see how she's doing. And I walk back in there. And 
all the pork producers are in the same kitchen doing, doing the, same the same thing, thing because <laughs> old corks fall apart. Yeah. Now, there is one trick, which is the farther you put the corkscrew into the cork, the more likely you're going to pull the whole thing out. Because the whole cork out. The whole cork right. out. Yeah. Because if you only put the corkscrew in a third of the way, you're gonna break it. You will almost certainly break off an older cork. So it's funny that even in the training to be a master sommelier, they tell you to put it in until a couple turns of the screw are still out in an old bottle. I've always thought that was bad advice. But, in an yeah. old bottle, put that corkscrew all the way through until the cork comes out the bottom – the screw comes out the bottom of the cork. It increases your chances of pulling out an old cork. But, of course, the traditional way – Is the asso. Well – I was going that direction. You can go with the asso, but the traditional way of opening an ancient bottle of aged port is to take a pair of port tongs. And these are a set of cast iron tongs that have a loop at the end. And you heat them until they are red hot in a fire. And then you put them around the base of the neck of a bottle of port. I have a pair of these. I'll loan them to you sometime. Right? And you heat them up until they're red hot. And then you put them around the neck of the bottle. And if you look at a port bottle, the neck has a little indentation at the bottle, bottom of the neck. Put them around there. Leave it until the bottle is quite warm. Take those tongs off and take a feather, traditionally a white feather, dip it in ice water and paint the bottle and the bottle will crack right around that rim, right at the base of the neck. You take the bottle off and you pour the wine out, leaving the cork in the neck. All right. This is a YouTube video that we're going to have to post or something because Jennifer— I'll bet there are great porthouses that show you how to do this. It's one of the great ceremonies in wine. You never use it because nobody ever opens a 75-year-old bottle of port anymore. Except she wasn't asking about port, and I'll bet that they don't have a handy feather in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) Or port tongues. So, well, what I was going with is the Asso, and you you, you may have uh, seen those wine openers where they're actually like— Two sets of tong, a set of right. two tongs. Right. It's a handle, and one tong is slightly longer than the other. Yeah. And you just wet. I'm w- wiggling my hand because you can see this as you. You're uh, absolutely uh, right. Yeah. The only thing I would say is never assume that the first time you use an osso should be on an old bottle. Of wine. No, practice. Practice with some yes. young bottles yeah. so you get a sense of how so, it works. And, because and fundamentally, the first time you wiggle you, it down. First time you use a, an osso on an old bottle of wine, you will almost certainly push the cork right into the yeah. wine. But the way you go is you, you you don't just shove it in; you wiggle it very carefully. One side down. at a time. Yes. First one side. Side, then, then the, the other, other back side. and forth, back and forth, and then as you slowly pull it out, you also slowly turn it. Right, I'm I'm is listening carefully yes, as I'm making it, I the, can the see demonstration. It clearly, as you do um, that, right? That, but that is actually a good tool. <laughs> and if you do have old bottle, it really isn't. Once you learn it, it's very, it's much easier and probably a lot safer. Um, and plus, it looks cool when you get that done. And if uh, your husband Jennifer is running around being Mr. Galan, I think he would look cool doing that. I think he's a great guy. Okay, and this one is from Ronaldo in Portland. Cool. Speaking of old wine, uh, Ronaldo asks. One of my friends says all wines get better with age. Is that true? And how do they get better and for how long? Great question. And that's three short questions and we could write a book. No and uh, air and it depends. Well, do all all wines get better with age? No. No. In fact – and what he says is how do they get better answers the first question because as wines age, they tend to lose their bright, fruity character and some of their sharp edges and they become softer and more complex. But if you're drinking a wine because it, you like the fresh, lively fruit in it, aging it will take that away. So that's not a good wine right. to age. And what's happening, by the way, is, is simply our friend oxygen. 
Yes. Is uh, oxygen yeah. is uh, and you know and uh, using Paul's metaphor so often is you know cut an apple in half and stick it on the counter and in ten minutes it's brown. It's brown. Oxygen right. does have some impact. Yeah. And so so, right. so wines do soften. They get more complex. For some wines like like Bordeaux, Burgundy, Cabernet, Port, Big that reds. process yep. is really important. For wines where you're drinking them because they're fresh, fruity, and lively, like Rick, you don't want them aged. You want I, them as young I as possible. I don't age well. You don't age I, well. As you can see. <laughs> um, you know, and certainly like a lot of your bright whites, you know, all those, you know, right. whether it's Sauvignon Blanc or, you know, Pinot Grigio and, and many bright Chardonnays, you know, the, the fresher the better. And for that matter, even some red wines, you know, yes. there are some bright, yes. um, relatively lively, fresh, fruity from Zinfandel to Pinot Noir that as they age, they tend to lose some of their charm. Yes. And here's the best part of your question, Ronaldo, and is for how long and nobody knows. No, because and it, nobody even agrees. And, and you can never guess. And you can always really, make estimates. This is this brings one of my favorite rules about wine, which is you should never buy a single bottle of wine. Because if you buy a single bottle of wine what am I going to drink? Well, if you buy a single <laughs> bottle of wine and you open it before it has aged to perfection, you're going to say, darn it, I should have aged it more. And well, if, well, this is unless you're just buying a bottle of wine you're opening tonight for tonight, dinner. Tonight, which yeah. is all that you do But anyway, in terms so of sort of for your co- quote-unquote collection. For your collection. Yes. Then Whatever if you open be. it and it's too old, you open it and you think, oh, darn it, I should have opened this two years ago. And then there's that bottle you open and it's absolutely perfect. And you look at that bottle and you say, damn it, I should have bought two more bottles. Well, So any way you do it, you ought to buy three yeah. bottles of and wine. And then the thing – that's actually not bad unless they're like super expensive bottles of wine. Then then send the bill to Paul. But the, <laughs> the, um, the thing about aging wine – and you and I make fun of the writers who always say we'll age for – so 2019 – Right. September never, of 2019. Yes, but it's never a round number. Right. It's always like age right. 27 years. Right. You know, it's like and they're just – And there's no cliff that a wine falls off of. Right. It is a long, slow change and where you like it depends on you <laughs> yes. and what food you're drinking or eating and everything else. And, and trust me, Paul does understand a long, slow decline. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, yes, okay. indeed. All right, that's it for questions for now. We'll have more in just a bit. Uh, up next is some really horrible wine writing. Excellent. Here we go. Here we go. Dancing, dancing, dancing. Okay. So, Paul, yes. you have a good one. Well, here's a wine writer who clearly couldn't think of anything to say or didn't have time to think of anything to say. So he, in writing about a tawny port, just decided, okay, I'm just going to copy what the winery sent me and see how it works. So here's what he writes. And a tawny port, remember, this is an aged wine, an older wine, which should have some, you know, nutty flavor. Has since... already been aged by the winery, right. so you don't have to it's age a, it's it anymore. Complicated, so you it's a complicated you, wine. So yep. Ronaldo is safe on this one. He yes. doesn't have to worry about aging it. It's that, already been ready aged. Ready to go. This blend was selected for its richness and flavor. Filled with rich fruit, it offers abundant fruit flavors, (laughs) spicy richness, and a dark fruit finish with notes of spice. So I got three riches and three fruits. 92 points. And And what does this wine taste like? It's got richness and fruitness. Rich and fruity. Yeah. How would you know what this is? This And of all the things that it would describe of a tawny port, I'm thinking— 
that's not the direction Tawny Port the isn't about the fruit. description of Tawny Port has to do with caramel, vanilla, right. hazelnuts, right. things that are not fruity but have to do with the fact that this wine is aged in barrel for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Right. It's that's it's an um, this was rich and, but, but rich rich fruit and fruity richness and richy fruity richness if fruit. You, if you read that, how would you know what the wine would actually <laughs> taste like? Right. So mine has the same sort of uh, 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 huh? to it. <laughs> you're so articulate is, when you're is, angry. Yes, this is from, from also from a review. This is a wine with a purpose, notably dense, dark, rich, and concentrated, fairly powerful, but what stands out is the finesse and agility centered on ripe plum, anise, dark berry, and light cedary oak. Okay, First, cedar is not oak. <laughs> right. Cedary oak, that's a pretty good one. That's, but I like the fact like that it is dense, oak. dark, rich, concentrated, fairly powerful. No, wait, wait. Dense, dark, rich, and concentrated, and then fairly powerful. Fairly powerful. And, and then, then <laughs> finesse and agility. It's like, yeah. talk about backtracking. Okay, this is Muhammad Ali in a glass. <laughs> yes. Yes, but I like it says dense, plus dense, dark, rich, and concentrated. Pretty much all mean the same thing. Right. Yes, but I love that. And then fairly powerful. But it's <laughs> a wine with a purpose. And with a purpose. That's a, What does that mean? This is a wine that gets up every day and goes to the gym. <laughs> so says, you know what? I'm, I'm telling you. I'm going to win the championship. It's the Muhammad Ali of wines. It may be well. Oh, dear Lord. That, that's a phrase, by the way. I mean, not that particular phrase, but that kind of phrase. This is a wine with a purpose or a focus or an intention. This is a wine with intention. What does that mean? <laughs> oh, anyways. All yeah. right. So that's uh, that's our writing for now. I think it is time to take another question or two. Why we Good. still can? Why we we still haven't gone bananas? Uh, this is from Gail in Hartford, Connecticut. Excellent. And she says, "Is there any actual definitions about what makes a rosé a rosé? Can you pretty make uh, can you make a pretty dark wine and still call a rosé? You can. You can. In fact, there's no definition for rosé. And I had a rosé the other night in one of the classes I was teaching that was as dark as many a Pinot Noir that I have drunk in my life. So there is no requirement. Basically, rosé gets its color. Do a quick recap here. White uh, Grape juice is white, and the skins of some grapes are red. So if you leave the juice in contact with the skins— And that's how all almost every red wine gets its color from the, from the if skins. If you leave juice in contact with the skins, it starts to pick up color. The longer you leave it with the skins, the more color it picks up. And the question is, how much color do you want? There are those of us who believe that rosés should be slightly pink and salmony and very fresh and vibrant. And there are people who want to make rosés that are a little bit bigger and richer and darker. And it's all rosé. And there's no, there's no category. There's no like at certain at certain units of light refraction, refraction or no. whatever. So no as, legal definition. As dark as as rich as they want, as light and pale as they want. A rosé by any other color would still be a rosé. Um, I I don't even know how to respond to that one, Paul. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on. Is what I'm gonna do. Okay, say. Yes, but so and Gail. So that's the answer. It really is. Is they want to call it that? It's a rosé. It's a rosé. They, they can have their giant. 16% Zinfandel and call it rosé. Uh, and, and our last question is from Amanda in San Francisco. <laughs> I like wine and read about it a lot and listen to your podcast, which may or may not help. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes. anyway, I go into some restaurants here and I don't recognize a single wine on the list. It's like the wine guy is trying to show us how much he knows. 
What do you do when you don't know anything about anything on the list? That's a great question. I want to go backwards because we ha- we trot this study out, and you know, we, you, we, you and I both have great respect for the folks at, at Cornell University and their Who do school their of hospitality administration. They do all kinds of great studies, which you, I don't know how much you love those, Paul. But this <laughs> is a good one. And one of the things they found was that listing brands, not entire list, but at least listing someone, some brands with well-known reputations for quality. Increased sales. is one of the four tactics. Yes. And it, this one can be as much as 40%, 40% increase. 40% difference. 40% yes. increase. So, yes. But so, Rick, you have the perfect solution here. When you walk into a restaurant and you see that the entire wine list is composed of wines that you have never heard of in your life. You start throwing things? You pull out your phone and you show it to the sommelier and you say, the f- bottles here on my phone that are vertical are the ones I like. That's right. And the ones that are horizontal are the ones I don't like. Pick something off the list that I'm going to like. Or you simply go into the restaurant and say, you know what I really like to drink? And tell them what you really like to drink. What do you have on the list that is closest to that? Well, I have an- another version of that. but It is, mu- is mu- somewhat much the same, which is... Make him describe many wines on the list for you. And then you run into the problem of him describing wines in his classic sommelier terms. And at the I, end of I'm all, just you have— make, you I'm making them work. You have— <laughs> I, I want him to run down the list. I see. Okay. Yeah. Everything. Well, they may, they may even print descriptions. Yeah. But the descriptions may not mean anything to most people. Well, that's often the case. Because I will guarantee you that none of the wines on any wine list will ever be described as smooth. That's true. They will not. Or rich, probably. <laughs> well, but seriously, pepper, the, the really simple answers. Well, and what, what Paul was talking about, you know, I, I say this all the time. My, my maybe only useful bit of advice with wine is when you find wines you like, take a picture of it. Right. When you find wines you don't like, turn your phone sideways and take, take a, a picture, picture of it. And now you can show those wines to people and say, these are the ones I liked, right. these are the ones I didn't. Right. The other thing is simply pepper the guy or the man or the woman yeah. with questions. The, the um, biggest make challenge them, here, Make them explain it. Just pepper them, pepper them, pepper them. Right. But the biggest challenge, of course, is they don't know what you like unless you tell them. That's true. So finding a wine that you're going to like will be impossible unless you tell them what you like. I just, I just like the idea of driving home the point that you have no idea and this guy put together a list that means nothing to anyone. <laughs> well, speaking of meaning nothing to speaking, anyone... Speaking of passive aggressive... Speak, speak, well, I'm just saying speaking of, of, of being useless is what I'm saying. That's another another round of Bile Talk with Rick and Paul. Our producer is Matt Bassini. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for Capital Public Radio for the studio use and for including us on their podcast lineup. If you'd like to ask us a question, don't forget the place is rickandpaulwine.com. And also don't forget, if you'd like to go on a wine cruise, you don't even have to hang out with Paul. In, in mid-July 2018, go to winecruisegroup.com That's right. or our website and find out more about this really cool cruise. Yep. And if you learned anything today, we hope it's the most important closures for wines are the ones that keep it from spilling. <laughs> nice. I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. Remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially us. Thank you.